0: Again, friends, and happy new league year. Mark Schofield back in the big chair for today, episode 180 of the Sco Show, coming to you Thursday morning, March 18th, 2021. I hope those of you that celebrated St. Patrick's Day on Wednesday did so responsibly. Just like the league year, it's not a marathon, it's a sprint. You gotta hydrate. So I hope you all did that. If not, you gotta play catch up now. It's like chasing a quarterback. You're trying to catch up. Um, Sometimes you have to put good money after bad. You're out there. You're at CVS. You're buying Pedialyte, all these hydration drinks. It's good to plan for that, so I hope you did that. Obviously, we've got a lot to get to. And we're going to do that in the first half of today's show. We're going to recap what the New England Patriots have done so far. Now, I'm recording this on Wednesday night. So, if anything happens between then and the time this hits the air, well, Blame Bill Belichick. But before we do that, your usual cavalcade of announcements here at the outset. Please do follow along with the hijinks at Mark Schofield on Twitter. Check out the work at a number of websites. Matt Waldman's Rookie Scouting Portfolio. Not one, not two, but three SB Nation websites. Big Blue View, Bleeding Green Nation, and Pat's Pulpit. I hopped on the mic with the one and only Michael Kist on the SB Nation NFL show on Wednesday Hope you caught that. If not, go back and give the old listen. And of course, you can follow along with the work that Doug Farrar and I are doing at USA Today's Touchdown Wire where we had grades for each and every sign-in. Head still spitting from the past couple of days and with good reason if you're a Patriots fan because the New England Patriots, they walked into the room and splashed the money around, right? That's what they did. It got to the point I had to sort of step back and start double-checking the names, the Twitter handles and all that, particularly with two the Jalen Mills move and the Hunter Henry move. Let's sort of run through the moves that they made with an eye towards not the money, because I feel like the money that the Patriots reportedly spent on players is sort of becoming a distraction to what the real dollars are and what the plan for this team is. And as always, when you want to think about money and the New England Patriots, it is important to go to people who you can trust. And that begins with Miguel Benzon, for example. Okay, first, let's work through the signings, right? Hunter Henry at tight end. U. Smith at tight end, the top two tight end options available on the market coming to the New England Patriots. Then Nelson Aguilar, where I think a lot of the money discussion sort of got sidetracked, Kendrick Bourne, Jalen Mills, Devin Godchuk, Matt Judon. Those are sort of the big names, right? I think what has happened is a lot of people are looking at the top line numbers, It gets reported out in the legal tampering period, often thanks to the agents that are working these deals because the teams can't say anything until the league year officially begins. And so you're getting it from the agents. And if you're Nelson Aguilar's agent, are you reporting out two years, 26 million? Or are you reporting out the reality of the deal? Because you go to Miguel Benjon's Twitter feed at PatCap on Twitter, here are the numbers that are actually guaranteed for Nelson Aguilar. This season, a base salary of $1 million and a sign in bonus, which is prorated, of $5 million. Next season, a $5 million sign in bonus. That's all that's guaranteed. This year, he's played for a base salary of $1 million. And so that's not that bad. And they have an out after the first season. If they cut him prior to June 2nd of 2022, they save $5 million towards the cap. If they trade him, they save $10 million. Same if they do it post-June 2nd, post-June 2nd in terms of a cut or a trade. And so the initial reaction is, oh my God. You're spending $26 million on Nelson Aguilar? No. This year they're spending six. With a cap number of seven, provided he makes the 46-man active roster. Which is, as we know, not guaranteed. And so there's this overreaction. They're spending so much money. How can you spend $13 million on Nelson? They're, They're not. They're not spending $13 million a year on Nelson Aguilar. And that's just one example. Miguel at Patscap also has projections for Matt Judon's deal. Base salary of $1 million in 2021 with a side in bonus, which is also guaranteed of $4.5 million. 2022 it does jump to 11 million dollars of a guaranteed base salary. Again, this is Miguel's projection, but it makes sense with the same sign and bonus guaranteed of 4.5 million. Now, they really can't get out in terms of uh, uh savings until 20 after the 2022 season because if they cut him prior to June 1st 2022 you're gonna have you're gonna it's gonna cost you four million against the cap to do it. So they they've really stuck for two years with him, but you also expect the cap to jump in 2022 when he hits that 11 million dollar guarantee. And so again, people are out there saying, "How can you spend 32 million dollars, or actually 54 million, for Matt Judon?" They're not. They're not doing that. These are deals that are structured to give themselves, themselves as a franchise some outs after this period of time. And so when you have people losing their minds saying, this is so unbelievable, like They're spending money like they usually don't. They're acting like the teams that we used to mock. The teams that we still mock. They look like the Jets. It's different. It's not all guaranteed. That's issue number one. Issue number two, they had the money in the room to spend it. They had the money in the room. If they walked out of free agency still with the third most available cap space and didn't spend this money, what would people be saying? Oh, Belichick thinks he can coach his way out of this. I thought the most prescient tweet I saw over the entire past, say, 48 to 72 hours came from Jim Nagy, the executive director of the Reese's Senior Bowl who tweeted something to the effect of the Patriots have moved on from mistakes at wide receiver and tight end because a lot of people crushed them for signing two tight ends after drafting two last year. Tight ends take a while to develop, number one. Number two, if Devin Asiasi and Dalton Keene do not look like the answers at those positions, tight end H, tight end Y, however you want to term them, Why beat your head against the wall? As Jim Nagy said in that tweet, too many franchises want to prove that they got the evaluation right and hang on too long. This is an example of the Patriots understanding that they didn't get the evaluation right. Or maybe it will become right eventually with those guys, but you can't wait. And if you want to do... With the offense, what I think it looks like they're going to do, you need two good tight ends to do it. Because that's where I think we are going offensively. And a lot of people have made this comparison. I've made it. Others have made it as well. Not to the players, but to the system and the scheme. The Hernandez-Gronkowski offense of the 2010-2011-2012 season, right? 12 12 personnel, two tight ends. Force the defense to declare their intentions in terms of their personnel when you bring that package onto the field, and then use tempo to make them wrong. How? You have two tight ends, Hunter Henry, John O. Smith. Twelve personnel, which means two tight ends, two wide receivers, and a running back. If the defense treats that as a base offense, and responds with their base personnel, three, four, four, five, whatever. I mean, three, four, four, three, whatever. You spread them out, and you throw the ball against them, and you're going to get Hunter Henry matched up on a linebacker. You're going to get John o Smith matched up on a linebacker. And that's easy pickings, even for Cam Newton or a quarterback to be determined later. We'll get to that in a second. If they anticipate that and say, "Look, we go base personnel," they're just going to spread us out and throw against us. Let's go light. Let's go dime. Let's go nickel. Let's go four-two-five, three-three-five, three-two-six, whatever. Okay. Then you line up in single back, you line up in two tight end wings, and you run the ball down their throats. You make them raw no matter what, and you do it with an up-tempo offense so they can't substitute. Or if they can, they're running guys on and off the field. It's chaos, and you're exploiting it. That is, I think, the plan. Of course, you need receivers that can get open. Now, What's interesting about Kendrick Bourne and Nelson Aguilar, you know, they, you watch them on film, they do seem like more slot types. And you might be thinking the last thing they need is another slot receiver, right? Let's get a big bodied X. Well, not so fast, my friend. Because if you're in a lot of 12, your outside receivers are aligned inside a bit. You don't have to align them to the boundary. You could cheat them down a bit when they still have the opportunity to use that two way go. It's not like your traditional X that's at the bottom of the numbers and you've got to be able to beat press with consistency. It's the Justin Jefferson argument from last season, right? Justin Jefferson can't be pre- beat press. He can't be an outside receiver. Well, if you're running 12, he doesn't need to be an outside receiver. Where he's aligned, it's more like the slot. You can cheat him inside of it. He's still got the two-way go. Yes, Justin Jefferson could beat press. That was a different discussion, A fought, a fight that I fought last year. But you see where I'm going with this. And so Bourne, Aguilar, Jacoby Myers, even if they've got a bunch of Z types, a bunch of slot types, that can still work. Now, of course, if they want to get it in on the next receiver, you can do that at 15. But that's the other sort of piece to this, right? Because I termed it Cam Newton or a quarterback to be named later because a lot of people have said this will be great for Cam Newton. And yes, it could be. But I also think that this offense isn't, say, as Michael Kist termed it when we talked about it for a show that came out on Wednesday, quarterback agnostic. It's quarterback friendly, right? And so whether it's Cam Newton or a rookie quarterback that they draft at some point, you can see this system working for them. But who could that rookie quarterback be? Because that's... That little elephant in the room, right? Little elephant in the room. Bad phrase, but you know what I mean. That's the elephant in the room. Could they get a quarterback at 15 they'd be happy with? Maybe, maybe not. I would think that they're not done at quarterback. I would think they are going to try to address it in the draft. They might have to go up and do it. And so, over the next couple of days, we best be rooting for teams to get their quarterback position settled, to take away suitors for quarterbacks at the top of the draft. You know, Deshaun Watson trade to Carolina or the Jets or, you know, one of these teams we've contemplated taking a quarterback, that would be fantastic. Obviously, Cam Newton, I mean, Deshaun Watson in New England would be fantastic, but if we can't get that, him going to a team that might draft a quarterback ahead of New England takes one potential suitor out of the running. And then you might get a scenario where suddenly the fear that like two future first rounders or three future first rounders would have to be on the table to get up to draft one of these guys, maybe that's alleviated. Another team that I still think goes quarterback, but might not now, Atlanta. They just restructured Matt Ryan's deal. They're kicking that can down the road a little bit more, a la Drew Brees, but maybe they don't go quarterback now. And a Justin Fields slides by, or a Trey Lance slides by, and then they slide by Carolina. And suddenly now you're trying to just get up to 11, the Giants per se. It's not out the realm of the possibilities. And so, if you were to ask me sitting here right now, will this work? Maybe. Maybe this works. But they have improved the roster on both sides of the ball. Of course, the focus is offense, but they've improved the roster on both sides of the ball. I think Matt Judon is a fantastic fit, almost an ideal scheme fit. They have improved the roster on both sides of the football. And that's what you wanted, right? When this got underway, we all wanted an improved roster. That's what they've done. The myths, the stories about how Bill Belichick wouldn't spend money, those are gone. Now you need to see that it works. And we hope that it does. I would to put them out of the mix of a quarterback. Could this work with Cam Newton? Absolutely. Absolutely it could. The, the, the hope and the prayer is that last year was a true worst case scenario with Cam. Hopefully it isn't. But we'll see. The other thing to think about, this is something our conversation I have with Doug Farrar and Chris Brown Wednesday morning, why ISO with, say, Hunter Henry alone, back set to his side, perhaps still James White and then Aguilar or Bourne as the inside receiver in the trips to the opposite side of the field. We termed that during the playoffs the indefensible formation when the Kansas City Chiefs did it, where Travis Kelsey is the y ISO and Tyree Kill is the inside receiver in that trips. Not that these guys are the same players. Obviously not. But you force the defense into some difficult situations, right? Let's work through this. Say you want to do a bracket inside-out, corner and safety over the tight end because you're worried about him. You don't want to leave a linebacker or or a single defender in man coverage on him. Or maybe you do, and that's fine. You're going to get one-on-one options elsewhere then. Or maybe you take advantage of that one because Hunter Henry against a corner, you might like that matchup. Then maybe you just do the bracket on Nelson Aguilar or Kendrick Bourne as the inside trips receiver. You will then get perhaps the running back isolated against a linebacker. You are going to force the defense again to make some hard decisions, and you should, as a result of that formation, accomplish two things. One, get that great coverage indicator, right? Tight end alone, if you've got a corner over there, either they're playing zone or they're leaving a cornerback in man coverage on a tight end, which, depending on the defensive personnel, might get you a great matchup elsewhere. Might even get you, your slot receiver, working initially against a linebacker. And so you do that. You get that coverage indicator and you force them into some difficult decisions in terms of how they're going to defend that, whether brackets, cones, doubles, however they want to do it. You will create opportunities. The question becomes, can the quarterback then take advantage? Now, all they can do right now is put that, structure around the potential quarterback what has to happen in the fall is the quarterback taking advantage that's the big key if the quarterback does cam Newton or somebody else this is going to look fantastic if the quarterback doesn't then people will return to their takes from right now which is this was a swing and a miss by Bill Belichick they're betting that the quarterback will be able to execute and right now I think it's a fair bet up next, some quick thoughts on everything else that happened around the league. That is ahead here on episode 180 of The SCO Show. Mark Schofield back with you now here to close out on episode 180 of The SCO Show, kind of recapping NFL free agency with the NFL league year officially now underway. Of course, we had the legal tampering period, which, you know, the jokes make themselves legal tampering. Mm-hmm. But that gave us a window into what teams are doing league-wide, not just the New England Patriots. And we are still waiting for news on players like Jimmy Garoppolo and Deshaun Watson and others. I think one of the big stories, I think there are two. One is the wide receiver market. And obviously, look, the Nelson Aguilar move has kind of been opened up to even more criticism because guys like Kenny Galladay and... Juju Smith-Schuster and others, Curtis Samuel, are still, as of this recording, available. And all of the reporters from around the league, team sources, everybody, GM texts, all that fun stuff that we refresh our Twitter feeds for is telling us that this wide receiver market is extremely soft. And I think what that tells us And anybody that's probably done their draft work knows this already. This is a great wide receiver class. You know, I'm putting together for Monday my next mock draft for Touchdown Wire, which I will recap in Monday's episode on Mock Draft Monday. Those of you members of the Slack channel have seen a sneak peek to that. You might see a lot of receivers in the first round. I've got five, six. I've got six in the first round. Jalen Waddell, Jamar Chase, Devonta Smith, Terrace Marshall, Rashad Bateman, and Canarius Toney. Right, those are the six I've got in the first round. Could another sneak in, maybe, but I think those six are pretty good bets. You might see 25, 30 in days one and two. I mean, where I mean, if you get to 30, you're talking about just under a third of the picks are wide receivers. It's a great class. And so are you going to be, if you're the New York Giants, are you going to be overpaying for Kenny Galladay when you can draft Rashad Bateman at 11 or Terrence Marshall at 11 or maybe DeFonta Smith if he's there? I don't know if you're going to do that given the cost involved. And so we're seeing the wide receiver market is a bit softer then perhaps we were expecting. We all expected one of the first big moves, right, was going to be Kenny Galladay, Alan Robinson, Chris Godwin, Curtis Samuel. Well, two of those guys got the franchise tag. Now, Galladay and Samuel and Schuster are still out there. Now, and obviously, that, again, that has opened up the Patriots to some criticism given the Bourne and the Aguilar deals, but we've talked about that. So that, I think, is the first story the wide receiver market not being as big as it was. The second story obviously is the quarterback movement or really lack thereof because, you know, Tyrod Taylor to Houston, Jacoby Brissett to Miami, those don't really move the needle. But two moves obviously are getting some attention. One is Ryan Fitzpatrick to Washington, and I absolutely love that move. I think it is a home run sign-in if you are the Washington football team for a number of different reasons. But to sort of go through them quickly, one, you've got a guy that can be your starting quarterback. Okay? You've got a guy that can be your starting quarterback headed into the 2021 season for a team that made the playoffs, won the division, has a fantastic defense, a defense which got better. Signed William Jackson the third, CB1 guy for C B two money. That's a fantastic move for them. Washington. Needed to solidify the quarterback position because the thing that prevented them from being maybe eight and eight, nine and seven, ten and six, was the quarterback position. And bouncing around between Dwayne Haskins and his struggles early in the year, and he gets benched, and then Kyle Allen, then Alex Smith, he gets hurt. Taylor Heineke in the playoffs, they gave the Buccaneers a game with Taylor Heineke, and so Fitzpatrick gives you the opportunity to come out there run that offense, give you some three-touchdown days. might give you a three-INT game as well, but you've got a defense that can make up for that. And so the expectations are that Fitzpatrick is indeed going in as the starting quarterback. But here's the other thing, and the other reason why I love that time. If, hypothetically, Taylor Heineke comes in, goes into training camp, and just plays out of his mind and wins that job which is not outside the realm of possibility given what we saw in the playoffs ryan fitzpatrick is perhaps the ideal backup quarterback we have seen it over his entire career right if your qb goes down or your qb is ineffective this guy can come in give your offense a spark Run your offense, and he can do it without needing a ton of practice time, which is so critical given the CBA and today's practice limitations. Because if you're rolling into the season getting Taylor Heineke ready for week one, you're going to need every rep you can get from him. But if he goes down, turns an ankle on the second drive of the game, Fitz can come in and he's ready to go. The other thing we have seen from Ryan Fitzpatrick over his entire NFL career, and particularly last year in Miami with Tua, is a willingness to be that mentor veteran quarterback. Other quarterbacks are not willing to do that. Fitzpatrick is. You listen to and read what Fitzpatrick said about mentoring and Tua. You read and listen to what Tua has said about Fitzpatrick's mentorship. He's willing to do that. And so, again, if Heineken somehow comes out and wins that job, it might seem far-fetched, but who knows? If that does happen, Fitzpatrick's not going to just turn his back on him and just sulk on the end of the bench. He's going to be involved. He's going to help get him ready. He's going to help with the offense. He's going to help on Sundays. What did you see? What did, were what were your reads there? What were you thinking? This is what I saw from the bench. This is what they're trying to do. Let's go over the photos. Let's, let's work through this. I'm here to help you. And then... If Haneke's ineffective or if he gets injured, boom, he's in the field. He's ready to go. I think it's a fantastic sign from Washington. So that's one quarterback move that was certainly noteworthy. The other, the Chicago Bears, who made a serious run with some clandestine meetings apparently at Russell Wilson, are settling for Andy Dalton. Now, two things can be true. This can be an upgrade from Mitchell Trubisky. It can be an upgrade. But at the same time, it's underwhelming. Yes, in a vacuum with where he is right now and what he showed last year for Dallas, when juxtaposed with Mitchell Trubisky's seeming inability to get the ball out on time in rhythm, Andy Dalton is an upgrade for this offense. How so? Well, Matt Nagy's system is predicated upon yardage after the catch. And I cannot tell you how many times i watch watched Mitchell Trubisky and how many times i watch watched Matt Nagy call mirrored curl flat and Alan Robinson pushes vertical up to 12, back to 8, and he's open with three yards of separation because he's a great wide receiver. And by the time the ball gets to him, it's a half step of cushion because the ball is coming out late. It's getting to him late, and the cushion that he has worked so hard to create, that separation that his route-running ability, his God-given ability to beat corners has been erased, not by great cornerback play, but by poor quarterback play. Dalton will at least get the ball out to Allen Robinson when it's supposed to be there, because the way that offense will be successful is if those 8-yard curl routes caught at 8 yards become 15-yard gains. If they're eight route, eight yard curl routes caught at eight yards for a gain of eight yards, that's not how that offense is supposed to work. That's not how that offense is going to be successful. So that's the issue. Now I think Dalton's ability to do that makes him an upgrade. But is it enough of an upgrade, particularly when you're thinking as a as a Chicago Bears fan, we're getting Russell Wilson. So it's a massive letdown. And now the other question becomes, are you going to be able to put weapons around him? Yes, they're going to have Allen Robinson. They put the franchise tag on him, but they don't have a ton of money. Maybe they address it in the draft. I've got them drafting a wide receiver. I'm not going to say who because, again, I need the clicks. Um, but I've got the, a, wide, a great wide receiver fall into them. And so they can perhaps fill it in in the draft and maybe you get a step forward from Cole Komet and you know maybe you bring Taylor Gabriel back or you do something. I don't know. But it's got to be a letdown if you're a Bears fan. It has to be a letdown if you're a Bears fan. The other thing I do want to mention in terms of quarterbacks. Two things. One, as of right now, Jimmy Garoppolo is still a San Francisco 49er and I do not understand why you look at the numbers you look at the fact that as of right now jimmy garoppolo has a expected cap number a base salary of 24.1 million sign on bonus of 1.4 cap hit of 26.4 but they can get out from that. They can get out from that. It'd just be 2.8 million in dead cap if they let him go. If they let him go. And if they do let him go, cut him pre June first. 23.6 million saved. Why is he still on the roster? And I know my colleague Doug Farrar is writing that piece right now. Why is he still on the roster? Now, maybe by the time this gets produced up and published and you're listening to it, he's not. But as of right now, he is. That's a head scratcher. And the other situation, obviously, is the Deshaun Watson trade coupled by the Deshaun Watson lawsuit that has now been filed. And obviously, I have read the lawsuit. The allegations are disturbing. They do seem somewhat out of character for Deshaun Watson. But he has released a statement, vehemently denying it, and he looks to clear his name. And the legal process will play itself out. A couple of things to consider about this. well, I've seen a lot, not to put my lawyer back hat back on, but I've seen a lot of people say, you know, innocent until proven guilty, you know, guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. This is a civil suit. As somebody that was a bad attorney, but for the most part, a civil attorney, there is a difference between the standard of proof in a criminal case versus a civil case. In a criminal case, which a lot of people are referencing when they say innocent until proven guilty, beyond a reasonable doubt, that is the standard, beyond a reasonable doubt. This is a civil case. When I practiced civil law, when I was a plaintiff side attorney or a defense attorney, I would talk about the standard of proof. And this is what is applicable to this case, a civil lawsuit. And I would do this, I would bury this point home in my closing argument if I was practicing plaintiff side, again, as Watson's accuser's attorney will be. I would stand in front of the jury and I would say this is not law and order This is not an episode of SVU. This is not an episode of CSI. Beyond a reasonable doubt is not the standard here. That standard is like 99% to 1%. That's not the standard. The standard in a civil case, which Watson's accuser is going to have to meet, is beyond a preponderance of the evidence, which I would put in mathematical terms as fifty-one forty-nine. That's it. More likely than not that's it and so that's the standard that will be applied to this case and so when you start talking about it when you talk about the friends colleagues whatever like that's this threshold that will have to be met I've also had some questions well you know clearly this is just about money because they made a settlement demand of six figures before filing suit that's actually pretty normal In most instances, you know, you will give like a pre-suit demand to the other side, their insurance carrier or themselves, whatever the case may be. Say, look, you know, we're going to file this, but we all know litigation is expensive. Like we can just get this done before filing suit. And a lot of cases resolve before suits filed. One of the greatest lessons I ever got in my days of practice in law actually dates back to my first year of law school. My first year law school advisor, Frederick Letterer, told me, and this is something I carried with me until the day I hung up the briefcase. If a case goes to trial, one of the lawyers screwed up. Most cases in the civil litigation realm should settle because trial comes with risks. Trial comes with risks. You don't know what a jury of six or 11 or 12 or however many that jurisdiction allows for, you don't know what jurors are going to do. I mean, I could tell you war stories about a a former colleague. His father was a longtime civil and, you know, at times criminal defense attorney. And when he was starting out, he was prosecuting a theft case. Somebody stole some steaks from a grocery store and he had witness testimony. He had witness testimony that people saw him putting the steaks under his jacket. People saw him walk out of the store with the steaks falling out. They ran their, you know, the receipts from every register. No steaks were purchased. Not guilty verdict a trial from a jury trial. And he couldn't believe it. And he asked one of the jurors, what happened? Why didn't you find this guy guilty? We had evidence. We had witness testimony. We had the register receipts. Like, no, this guy did not pay for the stakes. The juror looked at him and said, you didn't show us the stakes. They wanted to see the physical stakes. Like I've had jurors tell me After a trial where I represented somebody that got in a car accident, it was a police officer, a canine officer. He got T-boned when somebody ran a red light. And the verdict was good but not great. I wanted to figure out why. One of the jurors told me that this officer spent too much time checking on the other people and didn't check on his dog, which blew my mind. You never know what's going to happen to a jury. and So the, the idea that this is just a pure money grab, that the pre-suit settlement demand is evidence of that, no, like, it that's normal too. And so the Watson situation will play itself out via the legal system. Um, but as you get into the discussions that I'm sure you're going to have about this, whether this is a setup, a lot of people have made the connection between this lawyer And the McNair family, it's a way to put pressure on Watson to stay in town. Is it possible? Sure. Um, But it's also possible that there is truth to this incident. And so let this sort of situation play out, and we'll see what happens from there. But understand that, you know, the standards that are at play here in terms of burdens of proof, preponderance of the evidence versus beyond a reasonable doubt. You know, this is a, a lawsuit that will play itself out. Also, look up the attorney. He's a colorful dude. The guy had a World War II tank on his front lawn, which is it's something. Um, But I did want to just touch on that. Obviously, we'll see what happens. You can read the lawsuit. You know, the allegations are graphic and disturbing, and we'll let the process play out from there. But that will do it for today. There will be more moves. If they swing a trade for Watson or Garoppolo or something, I will be back to talk about it. But unless that happens, the next time you'll hear from me is Monday morning with Mock Draft Monday. Until then, friends, stay safe, in on your loved ones, and when you do, and wash your hands, and when you do, sit along, and bless those patriots' reigns, Donna Vaughn.